Tonight I want to speak just for a few moments on evangelistic praying. And I'm doing this primarily for my own sake. I've never really, <clears throat> to any serious degree, looked into my Bible on the occasions in our Bible that involve praying evangelistically. Uh, I think that we pray for one another. I think that we pray when people are sick. I think we request prayer when we're having difficulties in our life or we need wisdom or whatever. Uh, if we have a difficult decision. I think all those types of prayers are... I don't think I would have to preach on that or even teach on that. I think that kind of comes naturally. You're in a church body. You're ministering one to another. <clears throat> You're exercising your priestly abilities to pray for one another. But I think when it comes to evangelistic praying, I know that I feel in my soul a real falling short of the glory of God about this. <clears throat> and we do have prayers in the Bible there's not, at least from what I can tell, there's not an abundancy of them. But we do have prayers in the Bible for evangelistic praying. And as we go out and as we put things on the door, we need to be praying uh, for this. And so I want to read, I'm going to look at two passages. I'm going to read one, Romans chapter 10 and verse 1. Paul writes concerning his brethren according to the flesh, Israel. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them or for Israel is for their salvation. So we do know Paul is praying, don't we? And so when we talk about evangelistic praying, I think there's some underlying things that we need to be aware of, and if we're not aware of them, or even if we are, we need to bring them kind of the forefront of our mind. And number one, we have to acknowledge that evangelism is a work of God. It's a work of God in men's souls for something supernatural to happen in them, and that is for the life of God to be born again in them. In other words, we're, we're not trying to accomplish something that can be man-orchestrated. Now, we can orchestrate people walking an aisle. We can orchestrate people praying after us with a prayer. We can orchestrate trying to get big attendance. We can emotionally manipulate people. But if we're talking about the life of God in the soul of man, if we're talking about being born again, uh, we can't manipulate that. And if we can't manipulate it, then that means of necessity that we need to pray for it. Right? If it's something we can't do, then we need to be praying and asking the Lord to do something. And I think it goes without saying that this should be, it should be at least part of our heartbeat as being a church not just one for another or with the people that we're trying to invite to church, but trying to see God's work in human souls for the life of God to be born again in them. Secondly, because it is a work of God, we of necessity must pray. 
we must pray. And <clears throat> Scripture seems to bring this out. I'm thinking about Acts chapter 13. There are at times where we not only pray, but we fast and pray. And we're not fasting to try to get God to save people. We're fasting as an expression of our desire, our heartbeat, and our contrition to see God work in this manner. And so we must, of necessity, pray because it is this work of God. And then thirdly, God does use means. In other words, if all we do is sit around and pray, we might see God do some things, maybe in other neighborhoods or other churches or maybe even in other nations. But if we're going to want to see evangelism occur in our local New Testament area, then we must not only pray, we must use means. Now, when it comes to means... God uses means, does He not? When it comes to means, then it must it is our responsibility that we must be clear and on message with what the New Testament has to say. And we do want to invite people to church. We do want to invite them to things and activities that are going on at the church. We do want to do such things as have people over for meals, even lost people, for the purpose of talking to them about the Lord. But we got to know what we're trying to get. And the Great Commission, Matthew 28, says that the object of our evangelism is disciples. Is disciples. And that in itself is a whole message in itself which I hope to bring. What does it mean to be a disciple? And are we trying to do that? So we got to be on message. And having that message and knowing what the object of the message is, then when we do see the Lord work, for instance... In the book of Acts, it says, and the Lord opened Lydia's heart. When we do see that happen, what we will find is our joy and delight will rise exponentially. Now, the majority of our contacts will probably be rejection. But what we're looking for is the one whom the Lord opens their heart at that moment using us and the message that we're giving from the New Testament as the means. Isn't it a delight to see somebody respond to the Lord? It's a delight to see Christians respond to the Lord. And that's really, I was talking to an individual back here in our back of our services And I may mention to him that this is my delight, is to see the Lord working in people's lives. And nothing makes me more happy than seeing that. Uh, And secondly would be the actual act of preaching or instructing people, uh, teaching people from the Bible. Those are my two great joys. Those you can't get any higher for me than that. And it should be that way with us. And we should want 
this type of delight and joy in our hearts. Now fourthly, this is all introduction, probably the most difficult and the most reactive people against the message are religious people. And of course, the Jews were religious, were they not? And what has been instructive to me, not only instructive, but convicting, is Paul's spirit toward religious people. What was Paul's spirit to his own people in the flesh, that is, the Jew? And folks, you got to remember, did they not reject the gospel? Did they not persecute him? Did they not pursue him from city to city? And did they not, as it were, physically harm him? And I don't know about you, but I think if only had one of those things happen, I think my attitude would be completely different from Paul's. What was Paul's attitude? This is really the blunt of the message. What was Paul's attitude toward religious people? Because that's probably the type of people that you and I are going to run across. They may not be religious in the sense of attending church, but they think they're religious. They call themselves spiritual because they believe they're, they're, they're having some type of feeling relationship with God, whether it's while I'm cycling or running or attending sports or walking in the woods. They call it a religious experience. And of course, we have those who are in churches and are not in New Testament churches that of course, also have this. What, what was Paul's attitude? I have down four things. And the first thing, if we look in the chapter before, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why, Paul? For I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. He's not talking about believers. He says, my kinsmen according to the what? According to the flesh. Paul carried toward religious people great sorrow for them. I find in dealing with obstinate religious people that I find my heart wanting to get hard toward them. And that is not really a scriptural response. A scriptural response would be my willingness to love them to the place where I have great sorrow 
in my heart because of their rejection of Christ. That's a hard thing for people to carry about in these fleshly vessels of clay. I think the majority of even believing people try to avoid great sorrow. But Paul had great sorrow. Secondly, he says in verse 2 of chapter 9, unceasing grief. So on one hand, excuse me, is he bearing sorrow? He is bearing sorrow, and it is, if you if you look at me, it, it's a sorrow that's deep. It's deep. I'm pointing toward the ground. It's deep. But he also has grief that is, you can watch me again, that is not ceasing. So it's not going to go away this pain that he has in his soul for his people according to the flesh. So he, he's carrying around this in his soul. And this is amazing to me because Paul's primary emphasis was not to the Jew, it was to the, to the Greek. And yet he carried this about in his soul. And brethren, I do think that it's instructive that in all the paganism of our city, of our town, of our neighborhoods, there's a lot of religion out there. And I think sometimes we're, we're afraid to, to really engage it. But Paul looked about at all of this religiosity. And it brought him to really a depressive type of spirit, a great sorrow. And there was also pain there that never went away because of his people, kinsmen according to the flesh. And... Brethren, I know you and I, we all feel this to varying degrees when you talk about family members, right? You talk about your family, you talk about your children, you talk about grandchildren or whatever, extended family, aunts, uncles, whatever. There is, there is a type of sorrow there, isn't there? It's not, I'm assuming it's not very deep. And there's a grief there. But it goes away. When your mind's not on them, when you're not thinking about it, Paul says, I have this great sorrow and unceasing grief. And like I said, I do do think that this is instructive for us. And I would be amiss to say, even as I'm teaching this, there's a conviction about it. Because we're not like Christ. Paul was speaking as a mature believer. So this is part of maturity. This doesn't start when you're first born again, more than likely. It really comes about as you mature in the things of the Lord. The third thing that Paul had in his attitude and in his spirit is in Romans 10. 
verse 1 when he says, I have desire. I have a desire working in my soul. And of course, his desire was for their what? For their salvation. And again, we have to ask ourselves, when we think about our neighborhood, when we think about the people around us, how much desire do we have to see them come to Christ? And I would guess that in the majority of people, and I know in my own life that my desire is not what the Scripture standard is to be. Paul's desire is fervent. And it is so fervent that he's willing to lose his life. Now that's, that's a real mature believer, isn't it? When Paul gets to the coastline and they're trying to keep him from going to Jerusalem and they're weeping and telling him not to go, he says, brethren, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to go to Jerusalem, but I'm ready to give my life. And these weren't just words that he was saying. He meant it. That he was willing to give his life for the sake of the gospel. So here's a man with great sorrow, unceasing grief, and with an intensity of desire. And folks, I would imagine, the Scripture doesn't say this, but I would imagine that when you combine in the pot of our human vessels great desire, unceasing grief, great sorrow, that what comes out is prayer. What comes out is prayer. And he says that, Romans 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He's actually praying for their salvation. Now, he's going to take comfort later on in Romans chapter 11 knowing that when the Lord comes back, that all of Israel that is alive in that day when our Lord returns are going to turn to Him. That was a comfort to him in answer to this prayer. But that doesn't take away the fact that he is praying for them presently. Is he not? He doesn't know when the Lord is going to come back. And folks, he's praying for a religious people. A people who have great privileges. They were the Israelites. This was God chosen according to the flesh, God's chosen people. These were people to whom the Lord promised the adoption. They were the ones to whom God gave the covenants and the glory. They had the giving of the law. They had the Bible. And they had the service of the temple. They had all the promises right here in their Bible. And not only that, but Christ came from that line. He was of the seed of Abraham and the seed of David. 
in the seat of Mary. And all that we have as Gentile believers flow through that nation. Our Messiah is Jewish. And so, think about all the privileges that they had. Do they have a Bible? We could relate it to today. Here's a person, they attend services. They don't know the Lord. But they read their Bible. They partake of the Lord's table. Maybe they've grown up in a Christian home. What a privilege that is. No greater privilege than that for a child. They've been given all the promises. They've been told the Gospel. They've heard the Gospel. They've heard the promises of the Gospel to transform us into His image. And, you know, in reading their Bibles, they probably come to a place where they even adopted the name Christian. If you ask them what God's will is about certain situations, they could tell you what God's will is. I mean, folks, there's people in churches today that are lost that if you ask them, should you commit adultery? They would still say, no. And you would ask them, well, why do you say that? Because the Bible says so. It even could get to the place where preachers... Religious, but lost. And they say that they are confident. In Romans 2 and verse 19, it says they're confident that they themselves are a guide to the blind. They have this false assurance and utmost confidence. And they correct people. And they tell people, you know, you ought to be in church. Come to my church. they even know how to serve God you're here in Romans chapter 10 look at verse 2 for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God can you be zealous but lost the answer is yes And we should never mistake zeal for being born again. I watched a DVD that one of our members graciously and patiently allowed me to see and you have all these Jewish people and they're copying the Bible and they're generation after generation after generation. But copying the Bible doesn't ensure that you've been born again. But thanks be to God for their efforts. They had a zeal for God, but it isn't according to knowledge. Romans 10 verse 3, not knowing about God's righteousness. They didn't know they needed God's righteousness. So since they didn't know they needed God's righteousness, they sought to establish their own righteousness. And folks, that's really the problem with people. People say, well, you know, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I haven't killed anybody yet. Why, why would you say that if what you need is God's righteousness? You're only saying that because you're trying to establish your own righteousness. And this is what happened to the Jews. 
And they did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. Well, what is the righteousness of God? Look at verse 4. Christ is the righteousness of God. Now folks, with all those privileges and all that zeal and all that knowledge of the Bible and all that rejection, it would be easy for us to say, well, you have all this. You've rejected. So, forget it. But Paul didn't do that. He was well aware of all these things. But his attitude, his spirit, which was reflective of Jesus' spirit, his spirit involved a great sorrow, unceasing grief, and a great desire for them to be what? Saved. And as I said, when you have desire and grief and sorrow all mixed into the cake, what comes out of that cake is not only confession, but it's prayer. Because God has to reach them. It's not up to us to reach them other than the fact that we have to go and tell them. But it's not up to us to manipulate anything. This is God working through His Word. Now folks, I do think that when it comes to our church body and ourselves as individual believers, I do think that it is exhorting for us to take stock of our spirit. When the church at Antioch in Acts chapter 13 was fasting and praying, they must have been fasting and praying to reach the Gentiles because that's exactly what happens after that. Why would you fast? Well, folks, you you know that when you are in great sorrow, it can be so great that you don't want to eat. That's sorrow, is it not? Grief can be so deep that you don't want a meal. Not at that moment. You would say to somebody, thank you, but I don't have the appetite. There was this desire. And folks, we need, we're not, we're not going to get fully mature desire all at once. But we do need to grow in it. I need to grow in it. And I think looking in the mirror to see Christ in the apostle named Paul is instructive for us as we go forward together. So let's lift our hearts up to the Lord.